1854 book, Walden, Henry David Thoreau wrote, Men have become the tools of their tools. Thoreau's assertion is as valid today as it was when he made it over 160 years ago. Whenever we shape technology, it shapes us, both as individuals and as a society. We created cars, and then cars turned us into motorists, auto mechanics, and commuters. Over the centuries, we have populated our world with machines that help us do things we can't or don't want to do ourselves. Our world has become so saturated with machines that they have faded into the background. We hardly notice them. And we are reaching a new threshold. Our machines are getting networked and enabling new forms of human-machine symbiosis. We're entering a new era where 50 billion machines are in constant communication, automating and orchestrating the movement and interactions among individuals, organizations, and cities. I'm Mark Fraunfelder, a research director at Institute for the Future, a nearly 50-year-old nonprofit think tank in Silicon Valley that helps organizations and the public think about long-term future trends to make better decisions in the present. In this episode of the IFTF podcast, I interviewed Rod Falcon, IFTF's director of the Technology Horizons program, which combines a deep understanding of technology and societal forces to identify and evaluate discontinuities and innovations in the near future. Rod discussed Tech Horizon's recent research into how machine automation is becoming an integrated, embedded, and ultimately invisible part of virtually every aspect of our lives. Hi, Rod. What was the goal of Institute for the Future's automated tech research? When we look at how technology is discussed in public discourse, oftentimes the conversation quickly focuses and centers on automation. And I think when people hear the word automation, they immediately think about the future of jobs. And certainly the future of automation will impact our organizations and even what it means to have work and how meaningful that might be. But I think our motivations also lied in going beyond the debates that humans are in a race toward the future against machines, that we're racing with machines towards the future. And rather than sort of describing a future scenario that is really a zero-sum scenario, that as machines expand in our world, that humans ultimately lose. And instead of that, really describe a future of human-machine symbiosis and move the conversation to, I think, a more productive area which tries to find where humans and machines will co-evolve and really raising the question, what does it really mean to be human in an age of machines? And can we co-evolve together? And I think as we design new things, new services, new experiences with technology, can we design those in a way with principles that optimize for symbiosis. And even to think about how we might encode those machines in our lives and different forms of automation with principles and values that ensure equity and inclusivity. Right now, a lot of our machines and technology experiences are encoded with notions of productivity and efficiency and optimization. But I think an exploration of 
the automated world, I think different possibilities open up when we think about encoding those systems with other values and principles like synchronicity or perhaps equity. And so those were some of the motivations for exploring what automation might look like in the future. I, I really think that, that that symbiosis is an interesting concept to explore. And one of the things that you pointed out in your research is the way that machines change our behavior in ways that we didn't anticipate because of our interactions with machines. And one example is how cars turned us into motorists, mechanics, and commuters, and even changed the way that cities and entire societies work. Could you talk a little bit about that and the, the research that you, uh, that you did on, on the way that uh, humans are affected in unanticipated ways? I think one of the things we're really interested in and acknowledge is that a lot of times technology just disappears into the background. We often underestimate how we accommodate technology in our lives and how it ultimately changes how we go about our lives and, and incorporate these sort of new technologies. And I think one of those areas, we often don't think of clocks as a technology, but I think clocks are a great example. I mean, if you just kind of take a step back and look at clocks in our lives today, they're just pervasive. They're everywhere. They're next to our beds. They're on our wrists. They're on our phones. They're on our microwaves. They're in our cars. And when you think about the role of clocks in our lives, they're really supporting productivity and efficiency. In many ways, clocks govern our lives, but they also help us connect with one another. I mean, it's because of clocks, I can say, let's meet today at two o'clock and have this interview and we know where to show up. Clocks have really become this coordination tool or coordination platform um, that all of us know how to use. Clocks are a really good example of how technologies also evolve in our lives. It turns out that clocks weren't always a technology or a tool for efficiency. One of the earliest mechanical clocks was created in the 12th century by someone um, named Al-Jazari, who was an Islamic scholar and inventor and is considered by many to be the father of robotics. The clock that he created wasn't a clock for productivity. It was a clock built for religion. And so early on, the clock was really used in temples and churches and other places for religious ceremony that provided sort of a reminder. And it was a tool for adhering to these ceremonies and customs and rituals. And it was not until the Industrial Revolution did the clock change and has now really shifted from this religious technology to a work and coordination tool. It's also a great example because I think as part of that transition, we humans also became workers, managers, and supervisors. And we learned how to clock in and clock out every day for work. It became this tool for, again, efficiency and management. Now we're at a new stage and at a new level. And I think that's where automated world research really kicked in is that machines are getting networked. I took a look at my, my desktop before we started this call, and I counted eight different motors on my desktop, and all of them are c controlled one way or another by, by networks. So m talk a little bit about the future of cloud computing and pervasive machine intelligence, and, and how will it help people, and how will it change our behavior? 
I think one of the most interesting examples of, I think, a form of automation that isn't sort of the obvious example, but as increasingly as everything is networked and can have access to cloud intelligence and make and collect data and make inferences and identify patterns in that data, you know, we get something like a telephone, your mobile phone, that listens to small changes in patterns in your voice and by doing so can detect and diagnose Parkinson's disease way before any human diagnostician could. This is a project that's already underway. And again, it's listening to small changes in our voice patterns and diagnosing the earliest onset of Parkinson's. That already begins to hint at a world where not only is everything listening, but something like a phone can essentially become a diagnostician. In those cases, we can really begin, begin to see some of the value of collecting data and automating processes like that that just sort of run in the background and in many ways provide huge value when we think about public health or public safety sort of these automated systems running in the background that can detect disease or perhaps can detect a risk or danger. I think it's really interesting that you're using the phone as you normally would and is doing this without you having to like say, okay, initiate scan because that's hard. You know, I have a blood pressure monitor at home and it's in my, in my drawer and it's like, oh, you know, pulling it out, plugging it in. It's so much better to just have that stuff measured. And if you can imagine this world where like you said, everything is listening and, and collecting that data. The implications of that are, are pretty mind-boggling. I think so, too. And I think it's not without controversy, you know, in a world where everything's listening. Whoa, that raises a lot of questions about who's listening and why. But I'd like to think about the Parkinson's example because it just shows holding everything aside just for the moment, all the potential controversies really what the technology can do. And I think it's always important to just, let's see what it can do. And yes, it's going to raise lots of questions about whether or not we're ready for things like this. Um, but that's always the case. The technology is always ahead of our acceptance, whether or not we're ready individually or collectively as a society for the things that technology can do on its own or with us. One of the things that you looked into was the way that the, the very nature of, of products will change when they become networked so that people are not really buying products anymore. They're kind of buying outcomes and the products are never really finished. They're going to be in a perpetual beta state where they're being upgraded by the network and, and uh, the, the user's behavior on how they'll use a product will be monitored so that they can be upgraded for individuals and kind of like a persistent focus group, the manufacturer can make better products based on the usage data that they collect. What kind of direction is that going to take us in? Yeah, I think one of the ways that we talked about this in the research is it's one of the core building blocks. And there are about five or so building blocks that we describe in our research. This one I think that you're pointing to is we called evolvable hardware. I think um, one of the best examples of this is to think about Tesla. Tesla, the car, as an object that's networked, that's collecting data, but is also enhanced by software. 
And the ability that Tesla has to update the cars through over-the-air software updates and sort of enhance and update the experience. I think that's what we're talking about. And I don't think it's going to just stay with cars. You know, we already see that with our phones. Part of this research is to also challenge us that a lot of these capabilities that we currently find in our phones are we're going to find in everyday objects and sort of the material world that is part of our homes and our offices or as we're walking down the street. Even if it's a new toy, for example, that you might buy for your kid, it will continuously capture and sense data and use that data to enhance the experience of play with the child or learning. Um, It will also access cloud intelligence to be able to have those interactions with your child. And it will also evolve. And as we create new software or as the manufacturer of that toy creates new software. I wanted to just talk a little bit about jobs again, um, because I think that is on everybody's mind. Isaac Asimov introduced his famous three laws of robotics in 1942 in a short story that was quoting, he was quoting a fictional handbook that was called the Handbook of Robotics, 56th edition, 2058 AD. And it's kind of surprising for Asimov uh, because he's, 2058 is kind of late. I think we need to start encoding a sense of ethics into autonomous machines now. One could argue that robots taking away people's jobs is harming humanity. And what did your research have to say about people losing their jobs to smart machines? Our research showed experts are divided. On the one hand, you have experts arguing that 45% of the jobs we know today, and not just manual jobs, but jobs in sort of the more professional sector, like lawyers and doctors, will be automated away. And so the argument goes that what that means is that humans need to keep moving up a scale of value and keep focused on things that machines can't do. And then there's another camp that says, yes, jobs may go away and be destroyed, but in the process, we'll create new kinds of jobs that will replace the jobs that are destroyed. And again, what that means is that humans need to level up in order to fill those new opportunities. And I think, with, you know, the, the transformation is really the, the, the interesting one. And I think that's kind of the, the, the surest thing we can say about this human-machine symbiosis is that we might gain some jobs, we might lose some jobs, but it will certainly create new jobs that we have never seen before, especially this kind of human-machine symbiosis. And one of the interesting signals that you, you found was uh, a, a hospital robot that uh, workers like so much that they actually start to give them names. You can think of them as robot orderlies. And it's part of the new UCSF hospital in San Francisco. And uh, they created two automated systems. One, they've completely automated their pharmacy. And so when an order comes in from a doctor, let's say in a patient's room, it goes to the pharmacy. But in this case, rather than having humans read the script and sort out the pills on multiple shelves, um, which is open to some error, um, and then sort of package those pills and deliver them back up to where they're needed. 
this is all now automated with machines that take the order in. And there's really interesting video of this. And with mechanical arms is searching and, and sorting out the pills and then packaging these into little packs um, with all the right information about where they should go, what the right dosage is. And then these are packet, packed and put away into little robotic orderlies that have full reign across the hospital and then deliver those drugs to the room in which they're needed. And then the physician or the nurse um, that has the appropriate ID can open up this robot and, and select the prescription that they need for their patient that's in front of them. This, again, this is not without controversy. It's raising lots of questions about is the trade-off of you know, optimization and efficiency and maybe even addressing prescription errors. Certainly, those are all really great things to see, especially in the hospital setting. But it does raise questions about is this too high-tech and how do we balance this, these very high-tech approaches that are coming to healthcare with more high touch, more human approaches that we all like to think about having, especially when we experience illness or are in a hospital. I think that's certainly there. I think, you know, that example is actually a really good one because it shows automation at the enterprise scale. So inside a big university hospital system like UCSF. But I think... The other way that we see this is that that same automated prescription service, which is inside the hospital, is also coming directly to the consumer. So we have automated shopping systems, in this case, an automated system that organizes all of your prescriptions and then organizes them into daily packets that are delivered to you with the date and time they should be taken. This goes a long way in not only making the process of, of ordering and getting your pills much easier, but goes a long way in supporting the issue of adherence, adhering to your medical treatment and, and taking your pills on time. This orderly bot is like a, a really great example of uh, human-machine symbiosis and one that you kind of would expect a robot to be able to do because it's based on following very specific instructions. But you also, Rod, found that, you know, the kinds of things that people think, oh, a machine can never do this, like creative things, are, are not off limits for artificial intelligence and robots as well. I just recently found something interesting that uh, Sony's working on where they fed a whole bunch of Beatles songs into a database and then they had an AI create a Beatles-like song. It wasn't the greatest song in the world, but you could tell that it it sounded like the Beatles. And so another an example that you actually found in your research is an automatic web designer called Grid. What happens when artificial intelligence gets better and better at creativity in terms of symbiosis? I, I, I'm just wondering if if this will make things better for artists or if they should be nervous about losing their jobs. Again, another highly controversial area. I think it zeroes right into that argument that as we see more automation in the world and as perhaps jobs are automated away, that, you know, humans just need to keep jumping to the next 
step of value. So, and really trying to search for the things that humans are uniquely capable of doing really on their own without machines and creativity and art has kind of been held up as kind of one of those last frontiers. And I think the example of the grid and I think other examples where we're seeing robots that are essentially really good at painting forgeries of of really interesting art pieces, all of this is pointing to the possibility that machines are the, the next, are a creative class. We can start to think of machines as a new creative class. And whether they're designing websites on their own or creating their own art, this is, you know, machines and automation moving into the creative artistic realm is an area that we're going to have to contend with. But I think we need to be open to thinking about how, how can we create new music, new art with machines. And I know that, again, in the same sort of the same debate that we see in a hospital about how do we balance sort of the affordances of, of technology with the affordances of human touch, Um, There are going to be similar debates in the art world. I think the human-machine symbiosis is uh, certainly a a challenge that I think what we're trying to do is point out the research is that not all automation needs to lead to the destruction of jobs or to the role of humans, that, you know, we can evolve together and we can design for symbiosis rather than the opposite. One of the things that we haven't discussed yet is uh, simulating complex decisions. This is one of the combinatorial forecasts that you came up with. There was an interesting signal that you had a, uh, a machine to help people stop smoking. What, what uh, could you talk a little bit about that particular signal and, and what it points to? So the signal comes to us from a startup here in, in the Bay Area called Chronotherapeutics. And it's a signal on many fronts from us for us. It's a signal of body area networks, a signal about the future of behavior change. And I think it's also a signal of automation at in the same way that we might think about enterprise level support systems for decision making. We can now begin to think about individual or body area support systems for decision making. And what Chronotherapeutics has created is um, a system that is essentially an app on your phone, but also a patch that you wear on your body and networks in physicians and, and pharmacy. But I think the most fascinating thing about it is that it's a system that is constantly on and monitoring your body and any cravings that you might get that ultimately lead you to picking up a cigarette and smoking. And so as the system anticipates a craving, it will give you a dose of nicotine through the patch, and hopefully that's sufficient to overcome the urge to smoke. Again, what's interesting is that we might have, in the past, we might have systems that rely completely on bringing information to that context of urges and potentially smoking. So we might deliver someone the right information or a message like don't smoke. But in this case, it's a completely closed loop system 
that really skips over the need to change behavior and instead is monitoring the body, anticipating urges, and then delivering the nicotine to sort of prevent smoking. I think they're starting with tobacco and nicotine, and I think it is also a signal of maybe more systems that we might see in place around the body that, in this case, go beyond just the issue of of trying to quit smoking. But you might see a similar system for people that have hypertension. And we already see a system like this for type 1 diabetes. But I really like this signal because it really sort of opens the imagination to seeing more systems in, on, and around the body that will automate adherence, taking your pills. And and certainly there are many kinds of illnesses and conditions where we can just sort of skip over the idea of behavior change and ensure that someone is getting the meds that they need. I would love to have you talk a little bit about combinatorial forecasts, because I think that a lot of people don't know what they are. So could you talk about what it is and and how IFTF uses them? One of the things that we do at IFTF, especially as we think about the future of technology in any area, is that we always start by asking ourselves, what are some of the major foundational technologies that are shaping the future of technology in our world? And each of these foundational technologies, you can think of them as being really a force for change and possibility in their own right. But oftentimes in combination, they open up totally unexpected, unprecedented possibilities. So as a practice, we take these foundational technologies and combine them and really look at the possibilities that might emerge as we combine or think about their intersection. When, when you combine them, do you actually have like physical cards or something that you put together and then th- that kind of unleashes a uh, 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 some new ideas, like maybe go into how like you're you're in a in a room with other researchers. How do you actually put these pieces together? We actually think of this as a toolkit, and actually for this body of research, we have a map that describes the future of the automated world. But we also created a toolkit that's a companion piece, and in this toolkit, you'll find. I think it's about 18 to 20 different foundational technologies. And we create a toolkit because car, you know, these ideas, these foundational technologies on cards can really support this combinatorial thinking and forecasting. So for example, you know, you might lay out a card that says machine learning and computer vision and, you know, human machine interfaces. And then the challenge is to think about what really would emerge at the intersection of these things as we think about, you know, machine learning is going to give us more anticipatory systems. Um, computer vision is essentially going to make every every kind of data about the human experience computable, and and um, human machine interfaces is is really going to you know open up new kinds of interactions with everyday objects. So. Bringing these three things together is, you know, the challenge is what's if you're coming at it from an issue of the future of work and jobs, you might think about new jobs at that intersection. If you're thinking about if you're thinking about it from, let's say, um, from the future of food, you might think about 
packaging at that intersection and what does that look like? So that's, that's the experience. That's sort of what we've designed. And we went through that same exercise and came up with a few of our own combinatorial forecasts, which are reflected on the map, what we eventually ended up calling five building blocks for the automated world. One of the things that I, that I really like about the way IFTF works with its, its members is that they are, they're participants in this, this forecasting process. And, and my experience and going to these events, you prepare these kinds of things like decks of cards or exercises that are, that are outlined to kind of put things together, get some cross pollination. And it, it seems to work really well. And it's a great way to get these people who kind of have their, their stakeholders really to get their creative juices flowing too. So it's not all you just presenting things to them. It's you kind of facilitating their own process of discovery and decision-making. Is that something that IFTF is, is in its core that they've been doing since they started almost 50 years ago? At the Institute, we're always trying to bring the best tools, the best strategies together to really immerse people in our community into future possibilities. And a lot of these strategies and new tools are often things that anyone can use. And so I think we're always trying to model ways that our members and the people that we work with can do similar exercises back home, whether that's with their teams or you know, in their neighborhoods with community groups. And so a lot of our work has moved toward being more visual, being more modular. So I think toolkits is a good direction. And always with the notion that the future belongs to everyone, that we're all capable of thinking systematically about the future. And I think a lot of our maps and tools reflect that thinking. I, I, I think what we find is beyond just Certainly people like to be provoked and surprised and there's a big wow factor to thinking about the future. But I think ultimately people want to create their own futures. And I often um, tell people, I, I don't think there's any point of anticipating the future unless they're going to do something about it today. And I think a lot of our tools and processes um, keep that in mind and just building that capacity in people, not only to anticipate the future, but to start working on it today and bring it forward. Are we racing against machines? We're not racing against machines. This isn't a zero-sum future. In order for technology to advance, it doesn't mean humans have to lose. Right now, it looks that automation is moving forward on a path of job destruction. But that is really up to us. And that framing the future as a race against machines isn't really useful because we're not in a race against machines. The future is really about competing priorities, competing desires, and even competing values that is really shaping the future. So really, in the end, we're racing against ourselves. And what that means is that we can look ahead at the future and see automation in a very negative way. And, and certainly we need to explore those scenarios. But I think it's certainly a very a urgent future to explore. But it isn't all dark. There, there's room for optimism, especially if we take a step back and think about how we can um, encode 
machines and technology with the values that we want to shape our world with. And if we also think about principles that ensure equity and inclusivity, that that's really all up to us. What kind of questions should organizations be asking themselves around this idea of human-machine symbiosis? Certainly one of the questions that people should be asking themselves, um, I think it's kind of more of a challenge that as they think about the future of automation and, and the headlines are kind of screaming by that the future of automation, that that story is really incomplete if we just focus on how automation will transform the enterprise and the future of work. Certainly, that's a big area. But as we think about the scale of the individual and all of the everyday decisions and things that we need to do, that there'll be automated systems really at that scale of human experience, at the individual level that support decision-making, that automate all the things that maybe we don't want to do, like some forms of shopping, some forms of just everyday tasks that really can get shifted to automated systems. And then I think to really challenge ourselves to think about automation at the scale of cities or larger scales and think about how automation might play a role in public safety or public health, but also in creating possible ways that automated systems might direct human flows in ways that create um, stronger community or, or minimize risk. And so I think that's really the challenge is to think about the future of automation at those different scales, at the scale of the individual, certainly at the scale of the enterprise, but then at the scale of our cities. And by moving up and down scale that way, I think it'll open us up to really new possibilities in ways that um, we might not have seen before. For more information about IFTF's research into the automated world, visit iftf.org.